Greetings, dear friends. Welcome to the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I am Mr. Forest East. I'm coming to you today from Santa Barbara. Thank you, Eddie, for letting me stay in your house. I have a show here tonight. By the time you hear this, the show will have been in our past memories. But tonight, I'm looking forward to being back. I always like being in Santa Barbara. You know, this house, I was remembering last time I stayed here, he has two cats that seem kind of kind of, how do you put this? Um, like king, like queens of the house. Because I, I remember I woke up last time and maybe the cat was hap- unhappy that I was here or that I hadn't fed it or something, which I didn't know was my duty. And it had brought in a rabbit from outside and tore its entire head off, de-gutted the rabbit and was sitting there with the, the pile of guts, the body and the lifeless head. And it was just staring at me like, what's up? What you going to do about it? So I left. Anyway, I'm back. Those cats are here. I'm interested to see what kind of dismemberment might be coming my way. But hopefully things will be quite tame. Uh, if you are listening to this in a timely manner, I'll be in San Diego really soon on Thursday, June 27th. And you can come to that show. It's back at Trilogy Sanctuary. I believe that's in La Jolla area. Don't quote me. You can always check all this out at eastforest.org slash tour because we're always adding dates. And we just added another date in Taos, New Mexico on July 13th. I'm going to be going over to the, uh, it's the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram and they have uh, a Hanuman. I guess the official name, it's something of that nature. There's Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Temple, but they've been building this amazing new temple, new building for many years and they're finally finishing it. And it is the grand opening and they're having many, many days, like four or five days of festivities that might begin on that weekend, the 13th of July. And I'm totally honored to be going there and offering a lot of the, I'm going to play a lot of the Ramdas material because Ramdas, I believe, was the one who sort of founded this temple when he returned from India. And it has like, has Maharaji's tucket there, so I hear. And this uh, Hanuman statue was brought back, I think, also by Ramdas. I'm going to learn a lot more and fill you in, but it looks pretty dope. And it's going to be a very, very high vibe situation. It may be free or kind of like donation type deal. So uh, check out their website. I got the links on my site. I'm doing a private festival called PYNK Pink. I don't even know if that's a public thing. Whoops. Uh, sorry if it isn't, but that's happening in August. And then our release show, we're finalizing the details. By the time you hear this, it should probably be out what's happening with that for uh, chapter four, the release of the Ramdas album. It's, um, but it's going to be around the release, which is August 9th. Of course, the East Force Retreat in Boulder, Utah, end of September. And uh, Burlington, Vermont was added September 19th and, and more and more. But so we just finished a couple things. I just want to say thank you and fill you in on some stories before I get into this interview with Catherine McLean, which is totally interesting. And I loved uh, her point of view. And I think you will too. She is a, or she worked at Johns Hopkins in some of the psilocybin clinical trials that they were doing. And so she was right there in the middle of all that stuff. And she got her PhD from UC Davis and she's, uh, just a, a big leader in the areas of psychedelic education, harm reduction of psychedelic use, embodied mindfulness practices, integration, 
um, and science-based trainings that support clinical practice. So she teaches workshops and she speaks and she has a lot of experience about this stuff. And we get into some very, very interesting areas. But chapter three just came out. And so it's always hard. I sit on these songs and then I want to share them with you. And we finally did. So I was at Esalen on the summer solstice when those songs came out, but I was able to plug back in after the release and see all the wonderful sharing and messages and how these songs have resonated with you. The one about death was particularly salient for myself. Just that subject is something that's close for me. I think that's why I asked him about it. And I really love the kind of uh, 80s prophet electroacoustic arpeggiation going on in the background. And I love the strings in it. That's Kylie King playing the strings in the second half. And she also plays the bass guitar. Interesting fact on the same song. Very talented. And of course, we had Stick from Dead Prez on Electronic Sea, which I'm sure for some people, it's like, wow, there's somebody rapping with Ram Dass. And I sang the hook on that one, which is definitely, you know, pushing some limits. But that's what we're here to do is try to experiment and see how we're we're passing on these teachings and, and couching them inside artistic expressions that are new and fresh. So I love that one. Lots of lyrical content in Electronic Sea. And of course, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, it's a subject matter about technology and how we deal with it that's very, very on point for me. And and that one's deep too, because what Ram Dass says is nuanced. It was one of the first questions I asked him, if I remember correctly. And I remember like we kind of got interrupted in between. And so I wasn't sure if he kind of finished his thought and listening back to it, I was like, wow, this one's this one's deep. Like we could have gone into this more, but I'm so happy we have a song at all where Ramdas is getting into such modern topics like technology and how this affects us and how it creates a sense of individualism and how technology is inside the one too. And of course, the third song, Soul Land, with Laura Bird of the Minor Birds. And Laura's been super awesome to work with, and I love her voice, and I love uh, what she did with that hook. Um, we collaborated on that, and I just sent her some ideas. She basically sent it back to, it to me, and it was like a million times better. As you can hear, it's just fun. It's just fun, like summer energy. And I I love Ram Dass's exploration of the idea of a soul pod, and just this idea that you're with these these sort of soul friends infinitely. And we play all these different roles for one another as a way of deepening our incarnation and growth and love. It's beautiful. It really is. So thanks for sharing. Thanks for diving in. Thanks to Laura and Stick and Ram Dass and everyone who played on these songs. So chapter four, which is the final full length release is coming out very soon. You will not have to wait as long as you've had to wait in between these other chapters. It's coming out August 9th. So it's like barely over a month. So this stuff is happening. We're, we're winding the final corner here. And then it's just sort of a, a mission of helping and watching and just kind of midwifing this record into the world so that these teachings can, be, can become one holistic listening experience. That's how I was designing it from the very beginning that I hope from start to finish will really take you on a journey of ideas and emotions and heart space that will open some doorways. So that's all coming. And thanks again. 
Marissa, Rada Wepner, and I, my partner, were at Esalen this last weekend leading the retreat. And thank you, too, for those who came out. That was it was really amazing. We had an amazing, amazing group of people. I don't want to get into the you know any specific personal stories, but I did hear some amazing stories of of folks. One one person who who st- actually started from hearing this podcast, and that led her down a deeper journey into the music and uh, coming to a show and other concepts, and then getting gifted the opportunity to go to the retreat by her mother, who I think passed away. I mean, it's almost too beautiful to contain. And and then she's there and we're just sort of hopefully there just to hold that, that space for her to say, hey, you know, I'm here to help you have whatever experience you're here to have. And I hope it's beautiful. And it was beautiful. And, you know, when you're there, I'm just coming out of that like yesterday. I'm, you know, I was talking to Rada about this. I'm really reminded about how how vulnerable it is to lead a retreat. You know, you don't need to do this stuff. It'd be easier not to. And I, I say that because I was reminding myself that to to do a workshop or a retreat, for at least for me in particular, it's an artistic expression. You know, it's not that we're in search of the way, or this is you know the you know workshops or retreats or even sacred space has to be held in a particular that there is a particular path that needs to be adhered to. It's a recognition that this is creative at its heart. And in that sense, it's an expression of your own soul and your own self, your own background and your own point of view. And maybe this is obvious, uh, particularly when you listen to music. It's obviously, I think that's what people like about music. When you're hearing a point of view, you're hearing a voice that someone has sort of discovered and developed in themselves at its best. And I think I think retreats and workshops are the same way. There's many, many ways to skin a cat. And uh, it's important for me to feel I'm standing in a place where I can speak from directness. And, you know, I feel I feel like this with the music too. And that's like where there's a certain insulation of the comments and criticism you get because you realize how tender it is to come from that place. And you need to come from that place of love and support where you can just express and take those risks and recognize that in some ways, anything you say or do is going to be missing the mark in a way, because the mystery is there's no mark to hit. We're only marking around it. We're only uh, celebrating its depth and impossibility, or we're trying to describe that which is ineffable. And so I've just been thinking about that as we're moving into these additional offerings, the retreat in late September in Southern Utah, and whatever workshops or retreats end up getting developed for 2020. And of course, the ceremony concerts that I'm doing now. I've been on tour for almost four weeks now doing ceremony concerts, starting in Seattle and moving my way down to San Diego. And it's been an amazing education about just what I'm speaking about, about how just when I want to put my finger on something, I realize I can't. And it's an acceptance of that impossibility and how it's always a moving target. And I can never stand in one place and just say, well, this is what it is. Or if I just, you know, I've heard a lot of different opinions too. Some I've solicited and some I haven't. And they're very different 
you know, some people who want more of this, the other person wants less of that. Or some people think it would have been great, you know, if I had this color in it and then the other person wants um, the exact opposite. And it just goes to show me, it's like, there's nothing worse than pandering. And what's really important is that we're all standing from a place where we're doing our best to humbly speak from our own truth with the recognition that you're never going to please everybody. As a matter of fact, we, of course, we know that's impossible, but even if you try, then you're almost doing harm because then you're really just glossing over the complexities of what it means to be alive and what it means to make art and what it make what it means to be creative. So on that note, I love the independent spirit of Catherine McLean and she definitely has her own point of view and I'm happy that I could just be in conversation to witness and to listen and to not always interject what mine is. And and by the way, this preamble has nothing to do with Catherine. She and I talked uh, several weeks ago. This was just about where I've been out on the road. And I think, I thought this conversation was timely um, because, uh, you know, essentially all this stuff about psychedelics and psilocybin too is about freedom of consciousness and the ability to explore an infinite depth that is you. You are that infinite depth. And so, uh, thank you for supporting me and thank you for being part of this community and tribe. And all that really means is that we're listening to one another and supporting one another to say, hey, Keep, keep going, keep, keep, keep paint with your colors. And I appreciate that you're out there taking, taking risks. So here it is. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine McLean. I'm glad you could, we could finally, we could finally put this together. Yeah, it's where exciting. Are you, where are you coming from? Uh, this time, lifetime or <laughs> sometimes <laughs> physically. I, you know, physically I'm in, uh, I'm in Fairfield County, Connecticut, uh, on a organic, uh, cattle beef farm and oh. it's called Happy Acres. And it's one of those uh, weird portals that I was drawn to a number of years ago. It's been amazing and also super challenging. And it's my home for the rest of this year. And kind of on the scanning the world to see geographically where I'm going to end up next in which next portal. Are you, are you like actively doing farming there or what's your... My husband your is a farmer. Yeah, my husband's a farmer. He's managing 90 acres of mostly pasture and a little bit of woods. We've got 50-something cows. We used to have some chickens, about 15 goats. Um, There's an awesome vegetable garden that's being managed by two other uh, awesome psychedelic people. So it's like our own bizarre liberal oasis in the middle of conservative, wealthy Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds like it would keep you busy. I'm not directly involved with farming where I am, but I'm, I'm sort of in that, that world. We've got some cattle ranching going on and there's a very large, I mean, it's a, technically a garden, but it's probably like almost, almost an acre that f- furnishes a restaurant. You know, my neighbors are, are farmers market. It's only 200 people here, but you know, it's, it's a pretty 
tight community, especially in the summertime for our food sources, whether it's the person who makes the yogurts or the person who does the tomatoes or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and this, I think what seems like a nice lifestyle choice right now may become a thing that determines whether people survive these upcoming, you know, huge shifts that we're going to see climate wise. Yeah, that's a good, good point that I it kind of leads into a, a question I had for you. I was, I was just at the Awaken Futures conference in San Francisco. Oh, I saw you your were. Name yeah. Pop up. Yeah. So I performed there and did a little bit of presenting and, and, uh, you know, something that kind of came up sort of as a theme is this idea that we're on a precipice of, as a civilization and just this idea that we might, you know, we might not make it. And yeah. there are people there who are putting forth the idea that psychedelics, uh, sort of in a Terrence McKenna idea, are something that is actually probably quite necessary to kind of get us from A to B and cross the divide in a fast way or given given the challenges that we face. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's something like, that's an idea that I used to kind of hold more back in my early days, like 10 years ago when I was first learning about a lot of this stuff, particularly I listened to a lot of, I remember Terrence McKenna talks way back, like on the psychedelic salon and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, but that idea has shifted from me a bit. And I don't know if that's because I got jaded or mm-hmm. if it's, a, if I just lost touch with that, it's not that my own personal process with the power of psychedelics, it just became so personal for me that I kind of forgot about this idea that like, hmm, maybe, you know, what is the role that I want to ask you is like, what is the role do you think that maybe it may play in the near term future as a way of potentially helping us through these myriad struggles that we're facing ecologically, personally, politically, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I, I resonate so much with what you said about it becoming so personal. You know, I think when I was at Johns Hopkins as a researcher, uh, it started to get really personal and that made it hard for me to do my job. And then I can see that. Yeah. um, I started to see and observe and participate in forces that were way beyond anything I had a way to talk about, a way to understand. I started getting really sick when people would go through major breakthroughs, uh, like when I was a facilitator in the room. Um. So it's like the shamanic, the old ancient shamanic world intruded upon my nice materialist, you know, mostly atheist science world. And well, hold, I was, hold on there, hold on. Now, <laughs> when, when when you got into this work initially with John Hopkins, yeah, were you sort of an? Would you just self describe yourself as an atheist? Yes. So what brought you to that work then? Uh, not that, not that it's not interesting scientifically. I'm just curious. Usually I find that there's sort of a personal predilection that brings, you know, almost a spiritual backing that brings them into that work. Yeah. I mean, for me, I guess it was kind of like the religion of science, you know, the religion of discovery of being able to understand the natural world. So I had taken mushrooms, I'd taken MDMA. I had this extremely pedigreed academic training you know, like valedictorian type level academic training, like always excelling in academics. And so in my fairly narrow view, I thought, oh, we can study this. We can understand it. We can uh, like figure it out as if that's the point, you know, figuring out this thing that has been mysterious in the past. 
And I kind of brought that through my PhD with studying meditators. Like I was studying meditators on a three-month retreat in the mountains of Colorado, and it never occurred to me that they were going through this life and death struggle that while I was studying them. Like I was just so removed from an intimate relationship with the, the matter at hand that a lot of, I think, the shamanic calling was there and I just kept pushing it away, pushing it away, pushing it away. And when I was called to the psilocybin work with Roland at Hopkins, I also kind of still thought like, this is all about me becoming a great scientist and studying until enough stuff really started working on me that I realized like something else is complete, like something completely else is happening right now. And luckily I was forced through a few death portals, a death portal in my own spiritual practice, my sister's death portal that like, those were the things that finally woke me up to like, this is not the path. The academic, scientific, medical model is not your place, this iteration. And it burst me out into this like mysterious abyss that I've now been like learning to swim in. And that's when the mushrooms became super personal for me. And I realized it was my religion, like not my, it wasn't my job to be a scientist. It was my job to actually become a practitioner of this ancient religion. I love this. And I thank you for being so honest and, and personal about that right out of the gate. You know, this is something that's really interesting to me. And I'm, I'm more, I'm curious because as I said, it's so personal for me. And I'm fascinated by the studies that have been going on and to the point where that record I just released was sort of a response to it in a sense. And, but I'm curious from your own personal experience, do you find that the other people involved in this type of research, particularly psilocybin, um, have a similar path to yours or are they, or is, is there sort of an unspoken connection between those people that that people tend to have a personal connection to psilocybin and that maybe drives their work, but it's sort of they're taking the scientific path to work with it? You know, it's hard for me to speak for others. I, I feel like the clinicians that I worked with at Hopkins had a very personal calling to work with psychedelics. Um, however, I do think that because they were working within like, I, I don't want to talk about too much like black and white, good and evil, but it does feel like the mushroom medicine in our current institutions is like bringing this like very foreign intelligence into like enemy territory. And so when you're operating in these institutions that we've created in America, these like ivory towers of learning, when the mushroom moves into that space, it's disruptive. And to be a clinician or a researcher continually managing that relationship, I think you have to dissociate from your personal connection to it. You have to suppress it. You have to change it because otherwise it will destroy you. Like its mechanism is destruction in the service of creating new life. And these institutions don't want new life. They want a certain kind of work ethic that doesn't want you to get destroyed and reborn and destroyed and reborn. Cause that kind of rebirth doesn't produce grants. It doesn't re- produce, you know, the tenured professor type. Like they want you to stay kind of who you are and keep getting really good at that identity in my experience. And yeah. so everyone has a personal calling and still 
I could never figure out how they were managing to do what they were doing because it was destroying me. You know, so it's like, I don't know, maybe they just had skills that I didn't have or they were able to compartmentalize in a way that I couldn't. And so what, what do I assume from that? Did, did I have a more personal connection with the mushroom? I don't, I don't know. I had a different relationship with it. Like the mushroom clearly had an idea about where it wanted me to thrive that was not there. And it helped me get out, you know? Um, maybe it wants them to be where they are. Like, I do think the mushroom medicine is like a great ally and it's willing to work with anybody. It doesn't really care, you know? Yeah, and it doesn't discriminate. No, not at all. Um, so I can only say for me, that personal connection is continually showing me a very different path. And so when I look back at my colleagues, I don't know that they... I don't know their, their internal struggle around this or if they have it. So it's well, curious. You know, what you're saying, I would guess, would totally freak out like the rational materialist <laughs> uh, reductionist scientist. They'd just be like, she's <laughs> yeah. lost it. Yes. You know, she's taken too much. And so, and they just immediately start discounting now what you're saying in a sense. I'm, I'm just, I'm being, I'm saying that in jest, but you know what I mean? It's like, no, it's something that, yeah, it caused me a shut off valve, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've had even like psychedelic colleagues start doing that about me that like now that I've become a lot more vocal and critical of the corporate commodification of psychedelics, the medical model, it's so easy to say, oh, Catherine's become eccentric, you know, oh, she's gone off the deep end. Like she must be taking drugs all the time. Like she's living on a farm. Maybe she really like being a mom was too much for her. So she cracked. And it's like, you hear the narrative and the narrative is this mysterious power. We want to harness it and control it. And she is distracting our audience from like what we're trying to say. Like she's, you're not staying in the box, Catherine. I know (laughs) you need to say the words that we're supposed to say that have been approved. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because I'm, I'm on one hand working the research studies is the way to, is the doorway for validation for public acceptance. It's the doorway into perhaps legalization and more use. But at the same time, there's these, these inherent blind spots and it's sort of like you're trying to use the wrong tools to build the house, but they're the only tools we currently have. They're the tools that you're, are in power the ones you're supposed to use. Right. And um, if they're not, you know, I don't, I don't think even... the scientific paradigm is bad, obviously, right? But it's, it's just, you're right. It's, it's mucked up in research funding and uh, things like this. I, quick question, this is related. Like I was just talking to um, people at the conference and people you know about what happened in Denver and the mm-hmm. decriminalization of psilocybin. And then we know there's com- companies like Compass Pathways and Usonia who are working to produce psilocybin. And I, I heard that Usonia was not for this measure because in their eyes, this is what I heard, they see this as going to make the sort of the funding dry up and we need to stay with the traditional model and people are going to get out there and it's going to be almost like too much loosey-goosey excitement and the FDA will get freaked out and not allow the, the funding. And they were like, let's stay on the course, stay on the path. And it's sort of related to this idea of like, that's the way we have to go, opposed to like, well, what about just acceptance of these things or more resources out there? Because people need more resources. 
just like Michael Pollan's response in the New York Times recently. And I don't know if you read that. Oh, I read it. It was disgusting. It's confusing, too. And uh, I don't know if it was like just trying to inject himself in the conversation from almost like a PR point of view. Like, hey, I want to like stir up some controversy to be relevant in this in this conversation, <laughs> in a sense. But anyway. Um, well, I can unpack. It's a, it's a kind of like convoluted uh, family soap opera. So it's like, let me try to bring the audience up to speed because I've been part of this soap opera and it's like, you just keep learning about aunts and uncles and like twisted trauma and like the psychedelic medical research initiative is like this really fucked up family. And that family believes that it has the vision that's going to like steward these medicines into our like modern lives. And for a while, it was like, oh, everyone can be part of the family. And then I think enough conversations happen between, uh, you know, it's really like 10 people, people who run institutions. <laughs> it's a small like, family, yeah. Yeah. Well, at least the patriarchs, you know, the patriarchs yeah. are a small number and they're the ones trying to run the show. So it's like, it's almost all men um, mm. who are running the labs, running the funding and running the organizations. Almost, it's like over 95% of all of the psychedelic institutions in the world are run by white men. Mm -hmm. um, so they have an idea about how to make this process successful. And they're extremely resistant to attacks to that idea. And it's become kind of more and more narrow as you go along. So it used to be like, oh, we're going to reschedule MDMA through this process of clinical trials. And now it's like, well, we might reschedule one form of MDMA that's manufactured by the people that we have the exclusive contract with for six years. And then maybe the MDMA that everyone wants to use will become more available. So you're like, wait a second, that's a lot different than what I was hearing 10 years ago when I gave 50 bucks to MAPS. And you're starting to realize that this is a lot more about controlling the narrative and controlling the distribution of a drug. It's just like, if you're the only drug dealer in town, I mean, you're going to get really protective over that product. And so we've got just a couple players and a handful of wealthy people funding all of the research and all of the other initiatives related to the medical model. So then you got the mushrooms in Denver and I'm like cheering this on because I'm like, this is the disruptive power of the mushroom. Like you people have no clue what you are trying to control. And I don't say that to be like, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's not. It's just the mushroom intelligence does not work the way you think it does. It works by disrupting and giving new birth, like cleaning up the toxic shit and creating new life, supporting the ecosystem. It is on the side of Mother Earth. It's on the side of human beings as animals. It's not on the side of money. It's not on the side of these like corporate initiatives. It'll work with you to a point and then it will totally flip it. It will make you think you've got everything under control and you're just looking at the finish line and then something will come in from the side and that's the mushroom medicine. That's the trickster. And so it's, it's like, it's so fun for me to see them scrambling now because it's like you thought you could control something that's not controllable. And on top of that, it's not even the best way for it to work. So let's take an example. I mean, the way that mushrooms have helped me has nothing to do with what it's being studied for. And they want to kind of pitch it as this depression medicine. 
But like, maybe that's not even the best application for psilocybin. Like, should we be going to some Mazatec shaman and saying, hey, given our Western model, like, how do you think the mushrooms might work for us? Like, what's the best way to study them? Like, what's the best science that we could be doing to maximize the potential for our success? And the shamans might have an answer. But instead, they've just decided we are depressed. Like, everyone is suffering in our world in a certain way. So we're going to use this powerful medicine for our problems. And I just, I think it's like a, it's, it's even worse than a blind spot. It's like, they're starting from the completely wrong assumption. And do you think it's mutually exclusive though, because it's sort of like, it could be a both and, you know, we could uh, be studying uh, all these things at once. It's well, you know, right. mushrooms have obviously, and, it's sort of a broad spectrum of, it's sort of a holistic approach anyway, as we know with mushrooms, it's a, they're sort of saying, well, does it help depression? But obviously helping probably many things at once. And a lot of that's from the, the psycho-spiritual aspect of it, which is difficult to study. You know, it's like, well, that's what helps you not be depressed. Right. Certainly mushrooms have helped some people cure their depression, for sure. And they've helped people like me give birth to my children. Like, mm-hmm. what is that medicine? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they make trauma worse. And sometimes they make trauma better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to really help people with chronic headaches, headaches that are so bad they want to kill themselves because the pain is so excruciating and unbearable. What's that medicine? And so it would be lovely if we could ask all these questions, but the questions that are being asked are being determined by this handful of patriarchs. And that's where it matters that what's happening in the psychedelic world is a mirror of what's happening on the global scale. We have this extremely small number of people running a, a small number of corporations that are destroying life on earth for everyone else. And it's happening within the psychedelic world. It's just, they feel like they're doing good. And so the blind spot is like, no, you are a mirror of this bigger thing. And when we, when we say that this mushroom medicine is for all of us, we mean it. We don't want to get a prescription and go to your doctor in your clinic that is so scary for so many people to even show up to. And they don't have insurance and they're never going to be able to afford your prices. And this is something that already grows naturally. We could teach everyone on earth how to grow their own mushrooms with the amount of money that they're spending on these clinical trials. Like if they really actually wanted to bring this medicine to everyone quickly and safely, we would be teaching every single person how to do it safely. We wouldn't be trying to make it a clinical you know, a kind of controlled clinical medicine. And when I, when I share these ideas with my colleagues, it does, it just sounds like crazy talk because when you're in the institution and you're only talking to people who benefit from the institution, the outside, it's just like you get this like brain warp where you believe that reality is only one way. And then you step outside of that and you realize like, oh, reality is all these different ways. What's fascinating, what's fascinating about that is you're, let's say on the far end of the reductionist point of view would be like Richard Dawkins. And then you're bringing into this scientific system, as you said, something that's so non-rational and non-linear and spiritual and all these things like, well, with, with mushrooms. And it's trying to, they're trying to sort of work with it and make sense of it inside that system. And as you're saying, the system itself is is part of this larger system that is 
broken and outdated and inherently hurting the planet and therefore us and wants to be changed. So, I mean, definitely what you're saying is by definition radical and almost like anarchy in a sense, but doesn't mean that it's not true. I'm just sort of to play devil's advocate. I'm wondering, you know, I'm always interested in how we connect the dots from where we get from this place of brokenness mm-hmm. that we are in as a society today into our future. And yeah, I would agree. We, I would agree it is our birthright to explore our consciousness in our hearts and these things grow right there on the earth and we should be able to do what we want and why not be giving skills to people, which happens, right? This is sort of an upward battle because there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of everything out there these days. Um, and I would even say the album I just released is a way of giving giving skills for positive experiences that it's, you know, it's, it's their tools for people to use, whether it's in the research study or whether it's you in your own private life. And these things are happening, right? So, and I don't, I feel like the systems that are working with these, uh, these substances, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a snail's pace in a lot of ways compared to everything else going on. It's sort of, do you, do you see it like as, inherently as a problem or is it sort of like, well, let's just let it all happen. Well, here's what, you know, I think, yes, your album is medicine. It's reaching people who need to understand how music supports an experience. That is absolutely necessary. You know, I get so excited about people who are trying to teach, you know, people how to grow mushrooms. I get excited about the underground. I get excited about all of the harm reduction that Zendo Project is doing at festivals. I get super excited about this concept. Like, how can we how can we teach as many people as possible everything we know about this and keep learning so that while the medical model is doing its thing and it's only going to help a small segment of the population we're educating everyone else to make the most out of whatever that medical model like happens to add to our lives so let's say it does end up adding something great there's still going to be so many people who never have access And also so many families of people who do have access who are going to need to understand what to do with the mushroom medicine after it has started working. So like once you go to your clinic and pay $20,000 for psilocybin treatment, because that is how much it's going to cost, what's your family going to do to support you when you come home? What's your community going to do to support you when you come home? You can't just treat an individual with this medicine. And we know that, you know that, that once you introduce mushrooms into someone's life, it starts weaving in all directions. And so how do we help educate families and physicians, like hometown physicians and all of the other professions to understand that once we start including this medicine into our you know, new model, it's going to start changing stuff so rapidly and in ways we don't understand. So we can prepare for that. I get excited about that. So, you know, your first question about this coming shift, these global, uh, I don't know, you could use the word collapse or catastrophes. They've already started, you know, the refugee situation. Transformation. So yeah. So transformation is a euphemism Deep for it. But like, yeah, you're seeing this violent disruptive shift. So what's the role of what you what we're talking about with psychedelics for the people, like education, training, skills for just everybody versus the medical model? I would say if we if things were kind of great and we weren't facing the sense of urgency on the planet, sure, take whatever time you want 
take $40 million and develop psilocybin into a medicine for depression. But we don't have the time to waste on that model. They can keep doing it, but I think it's foolhardy. I think if they really wanted to use their power and their money to change the planet for the better, to potentially save humanity, they would be redirecting their efforts elsewhere toward these educational platforms, towards changing the law directly, towards educating the public so that we mitigate the inherent risks or the, of the power of this medicine. I would, you know, if I were the person who just got $40 million to run a clinical trial, I would, and I'm hearing about the climate scientists saying maybe five years, maybe 10 until global catastrophe I mean, what's, what good is your medical clinic going to be and your proprietary capsule? Like, so it is a contextual answer. It's like, we're at a point in history where we can't fuck around anymore. I would ha be happy to be wrong. Like if we're all kind of like, you know, hunky dory in a hundred years and they're like, Hey, look, we got medical clinics. They're doing great. We got, you know, universal healthcare. We've got awesome leadership in American politics you know, we've kind of made these big shifts. Like we've got people living on Mars. Catherine was so wrong about that mushroom medicine. Great. Cause that's awesome for humanity. It's awesome for the earth. And I just, I can't ignore what the climate scientists are actually saying. And like the reality of the refugee civil war problem that's already happening. And it's just moving further North. Like it hasn't hit enough of America yet for us to take it seriously, but it's coming. Well, unfortunately, the way most change happens in our lives is through is through uh, big experiences, you know, near death experiences, bankruptcy, divorce, and or these sorts of collapse, and they force, in a way, change in our own psyche. And we do see that being mirrored as a civilization. And I don't want any. I want the least amount of suffering we can have for people and animals and the planet itself. Yet, most likely. Um, you know, we need to be pushed a bit and we're being pushed quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. And if, if I've learned anything personally from the mushrooms, it's one that I don't fully understand uh, all that's going on. And I certainly don't pretend to understand what's going on with the mushrooms. But I also, I, I sense in my own life that it sort of has this larger force and paradigm that's reflective of everything going on. Like it's sort of like this, uh, there's an energy moving through that sort of has to move through the way it's moving through. That doesn't make it right or better, and it doesn't absolve us of personal choice. But at the same time, well, this is right. Yeah, and a level this is of trust. This is where I think you find the way in which you will be able to, you know, live and die in peace. So for you, creating a this musical medicine that accompanies the mushroom experience feels to me like that will help you live and die in peace, knowing everything we know about what's happening now. For me, continuing to interface with the clinical medical model will not create more peace in my life and it won't help me die in peace because it feels like that's not my, it's not honoring my relationship with how I understand this medicine to work. And so, for, for you, yeah, yeah, and I hear that each, very clearly, right? And so yeah. we each kind of get excited about our piece. The question that I have for these corporate folks is: 
are they being true to their ethics? If they say yes and they're adamant about that, then good luck. You know, keep doing what you're doing. Please listen to some of the criticism. Understand that it's very easy to price gouge. It's very easy to make medicine inaccessible in our modern system. Please hear that and, you know, uh, you know, Godspeed. I don't know how many of them can say adamantly, yes, this is aligned with my ethics. It's aligned with my deepest values. I, I know that this is what my role is. And that's just the question that I think we should be asking the leaders in this movement. Yeah, and that's a, a wonderful question. it's a wonderful litmus test for all of us all the time. I mean, I, I find this kind of stuff just like running a business, quote unquote, East Forest, where it's based in spirituality more or less, but it's a business. Like I'm trying to make a living and pay rent and and I you know, you're doing things in a capitalist world. And it's it is a constant rechecking in with yourself because you sort of, as with all things in life, you fall in, you fall out, you fall in, you fall out. And I'm sure with these folks, I mean, everyone's different, but for some of them, I, I think they probably have moments where they feel conflicted or more tapped in with it and moments where they're quite lost and they don't even know they're lost. And they're just sort of lost in maybe their, the ego of, like you said, a new paper or a new grant coming in or their own validation in this process, or they're just inside a system that's so you know, tight in itself of just sort of a scientific research and that world itself, like you said, it's a religion of, of its own. It's a culture. And inside that culture, just like any culture, it's not like that's a bad one and others, you know, there's many, there's infinite. And we, we all get kind of lost in our own identities that way. And that's what's, what's wonderful about, that's why I was kind of initially asking you how much the, these folks are personally involved with the actual medicine itself, because I feel like that would dissolve a lot of it. Right. You know, it's like, do, yeah, some it's of these a great question. Even, do they journey uh, themselves? I mean, uh, you know, it's like, I always joked with Roland that the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club. Yeah. And that was my impression when I first entered this world is like, wow, everyone's doing these drugs, but everyone's pretending they're not doing these drugs. Yeah, and right. I'm being told, I have to say, I'm not doing these drugs, but I'm like, but like, it was this weird this just like, like I said, brain warp, like, don't, don't think what you're thinking. Don't, don't talk about what you're experiencing. Don't say what you're observing. And it creates a split. I think it creates a split in identity and it creates a split in who you really are and like your role. And so I've always wondered, how is it possible to have psychedelic experiences and not fundamentally change? I mean, that's my whole research at Hopkins was showing that people change dramatically overnight. They become much more open-minded. They pick new vocations. They end relationships. They begin relationships. They make these just like amazing shifts. And yet for the folks who are leading our movement, at least the scientific medical funder folks, they're, they don't seem to be changing in the way that I'm seeing the possibility for change when psychedelics are applied in a very open, curious, compassionate space. So They're scared. Are, are they using the drugs differently than everyone else? Are they not using them? Or it's like Leary was the one who talked about ego trips. And it's like you can take a high dose of acid and amplify everything you already believe. 
and stick with that, you know, or you can have an ego dissolving experience. And I think there are even, that's just two examples. Then there are even other, what I'm more interested in is like, forget the ego. Like, what about these experiences that show you all of the ways that you're connected with nature and forces like beyond these little ideas about our personality and our like ego structure? But I just wonder how many people are on an ego trip. And I, I ask myself this question all the time. And the funny thing is with the mushrooms, like at some point they just said, hey, you're not really actually supposed to be ingesting us at the moment. You're like a mom. And that's why these experiences are, still, are unpleasant for you, no matter how little you take. And I was like, oh, thanks. And then it's like, it just, it released me because that medicine doesn't require this continual ingesting to like amplify your ideas. Like it, it, once you've established the relationship, you can keep asking questions and you'll learn and you'll move and you'll change. And like, that's the coolest thing. The mushrooms aren't like trying to keep you in servitude. Like, Oh, you got to keep coming back for the extra hit. You know, <laughs> like you got to yeah, take the high dose. Something we see in ceremony of like, even of all kinds of ceremony, you know, Lakota sweat lodges, for instance. I mean, you're always in the river. and yeah. it, <laughs> Once you're in a, it, right. <laughs> yeah. And it's a way of saying like, you know, it's just sort of recontextualizing your life into a spiritual context all the time. And that's sort of what makes life richer. It gives it more depth and meaning when you feel less separate and you can tap into these sorts of uh, energies that are you too. It's sort of, you know, amplifying and increasing the sense of what it means to be you and seeing that in others and seeing that in the earth. And it's a sense of inclusiveness. And mm. I, I do think that that's, that is inherent in, in the process, but every soul has their own journey. And I, I see people diving into this space and they're, they're, they're at where they're at and they get out of it, what they're going to get out of it in that moment. For some people, it, it, it is so personal going back to the beginning of this conversation. And it is so ineffable in a way that I, I never try to control that. I'm just sort of witnessing people getting what they're getting out of it. You can help and you can provide skills and, and counsel to them. But at the same time, there does seem to be a strange perfection to it. It's like they, everyone gets what they, they sort of need, even when that's challenging. God knows I've had some challenging experiences in my life and they're confusing. And I, it's called the mystery for a reason. And uh, you know, we're just down here sort of doing our best. It's crazy. As you were saying that, I'm literally looking out my window and I saw like this I, uh, coyote or something just like sauntering across the pasture. I've never seen that in broad daylight. And I'm like, hello, like here it is. <laughs> trickster. The right. trickster. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, and, and looking, that, like, am that I... perfectly summarizes it really. Cause it's sort of saying like, Hey guys, quit trying to put your finger on it all because it's, and then I, cause I'm just going to like, there's a playfulness to it that is sacred and profane. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't, I can't understand it. It's like teaching my dog how to understand something in my octave of consciousness. It's like he can sense it, but can't fully ever like understand it in the way that I think I understand it. And the mystery is, is talking to us and reflecting that to us, I feel, through the mushroom, through these layers of consciousness and who knows what. And there is a message in there. That's why it's speaking in, in rich metaphor and 
feeling because it's trying to relay concepts that are far beyond the dualistic nature of our mind. Mm. And it speaks that heart language. And that's why when science tries to put their finger on it, it's almost impossible. And they're just sort of dancing around the edges. And I, I personally don't think that's a, a bad thing. But I also am completely in agreement with you that it's sort of a fool's errand. I just feel like that's that's the errand we're on in this, not <laughs> just the scientific one, but this whole world. It's it's sort of radically shifting and in, 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 in this gyration and something that we don't even we can't see what's outside the birth canal because <laughs> yes. we're in it and we, we're also in it. We can't control these muscle convulsions going on, pushing us out. It is happening mm-hmm. and it's probably generational and it's, yeah. it's going to take some time. And, and I, too, want it to happen now because it's maddening at times and it's beautiful at times. And just having this conversation is in that vein of just like us basically trying to say what is happening what do we do? And I see you going through it too. And here we are. That's really, it's one big story, one big conversation. Yeah. And so, you know, when you like, you know, I think so many people who have taken psychedelics resonate with what we're sharing and we may agree or disagree about the right path forward, but at least we're open to having the conversation. That would be my hope is that our psychedelic experiences have at least opened us up enough to listen to other people's opinions and perspective and have the conversation. When I hear the founder of Compass tell the MAPS board members that he doesn't want to get in the way of decriminalization efforts, and then you have Michael Pollan, who's friends with him, who was invited to one of his early projects on the Isle of Man, write an op-ed shitting on the Denver Initiative. This is related. This is exactly what people like me and Dave Nichols were saying a year ago, that when the law starts to, when the people start taking the power and changing the law, these corporate folks are going to freak. They promised they wouldn't. They said, you know, our psilocybin has nothing to do with mushrooms. It has everything to do with mushrooms. And so are they actually open to the conversation? I don't think they are. And so if they would like to be part of the dance, if they would like to be part of the community, this is the conversation we're in. We're, we're not actually waiting for you all to tell us when it's okay. Just like you're not waiting for us to tell you it's okay to start your business. Like you do what you do, we do what we do, and we have to have this dialogue. And so if you succeed medically, we can be happy or not about that. And you have to also accept that the people aren't going to wait. And so you can be upset about Denver. You can have your concerns about it, but let's explore those. Like, what is it about Denver that's so scary? What is it that somehow threatens your plans, you know, for success? Uh, Maybe it actually helps your plans for success if you were open to Mm -hmm. asking that question. And this is how this whole thing is going to move forward in really unpredictable ways. And so again, I just, it's not so much that they're, they're wrong and I'm right, or there is a wrong and right, but it's a, it's a kind of perspective about how you're willing to consult with and be in dialogue in community versus being the person telling everyone how it's going to be. Well, let me ask you about that idea of community uh, and diversity. 
and how most, I was thinking about that. I was telling my partner before we went to the Wake in Futures, I was like, how many, what percentage of women do you think there will be and <laughs> what percentage of diversity? And actually it was much higher than we were jadedly saying we thought it would be. Uh, but no doubt that uh, w- when you're any, in any of these circles, it's typically pretty white. It typically leans in the male direction. And probably the folks who may benefit from this the most are the ones who have had the most trauma or the most disadvantaged, but are the furthest from this even being on the menu. Uh, and so what do you think can be done to reach out to those communities in a psychedelic sense? Or is there anything that can be done? And how do you think it would be helpful to those uh, in these in these different worlds? Well, I've got to be honest with you, and this is a hard thing to say because I love Mikey. I met him, you know, and I love what he's done. But when he wanted me to come to this summit, I said no. And I said no for an ethical reason. I felt like it wasn't the best way for me to spend my time and energy knowing that it was going to be mostly the elites, you know, sharing and having the conversation. Instead, I was, you know, I, I would I went to Philadelphia and did a workshop with their amazingly diverse community there of psychedelic folks. And this African-American woman shared that she had just spoken earlier in the day about how mushrooms can be a part of healing black communities. You know, the, the per- perpetual systemic violence that they're experiencing. The fact that black women are dying at unprecedented rates when during childbirth in, you know, in our mortality, our mortality rates for moms and, and kids in America is just doesn't match what we believe to be our kind of safe, health, safe healthcare system. And I said, like, I want to learn from you. I want to learn what you think about how these mushrooms can help the people that you care about. Like, that's so much more interesting to me than what someone tells me at the Awakened Future Summit. And that's just where I'm at. I think we mm-hmm. have to start putting ourselves into situations where we're the minority. We're not the we're not the average. We're not speaking to our our people all the time and break up that tribalism and like learn from a totally different perspective and amplify that perspective. And I I don't know how mushrooms can help these communities. It's just it's foreign to me. And so the only thing I know to do is to meet them and have the conversation and say, hey, with my connections and with my understanding, how can I help you? How can we work together? Um, there's this, I'm going to forget the quote, but there's this Aboriginal woman who said something like, if you've come here to like save me or like whatever, don't waste your time. But if my salvation and my freedom and my thriving and yours are connected, then let's work together. And that's how I kind of see a shift where we start just anyone who has a concern about the future of the planet, the systemic violence that so many are experiencing, the inequality and psychedelics, like let's just all find as much ways to connect with each other as possible and come up with creative solutions, come up with fun solutions. You know, it doesn't have to all be about healing trauma. It can be about like, yeah, just like how psychedelics make people feel so alive and want to make art for the first yeah, time or it's a plant funny, seeds like, or incendiary idea, like making well people more well. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of obvious, but yeah. 
and certainly drawing on ancient wisdom, but also creating new things, creating new rituals that match our current situation. And I don't know how do you do that. I mean, a, a friend in New York and like a number of us have been like, do we just like start up the bus again, like get a bunch of people on the bus and just tour America and like have these conversations everywhere and just ignite this fire, you know, plant the spores and ignite the fire. It's like, I think there's a lot of interest and there, there are people who haven't heard about mushrooms yet, who, when they hear about them, will have solutions that none of the experts have come up with. And like, I want to hear those ideas, you know, rather than just the narrow ones that me and my colleagues have. Um, sure. like we don't know where the answer is and that's the cool thing. It's like, we have to look everywhere. And I'm I personally, I really feel like the role of ceremony is important with the mushrooms. And I personally don't think it's that divorced from it, or I think it really helps because it's also something we've been using as a technology for probably millennia. And it's a way to just help these experiences be positive. So in some ways there's other things we can be teaching or offering people, which is sort of like introducing things like ritual and ceremony into their lives. I mean this in a very grounded, practical way. Because um, what you're really doing is bringing in a sense of spirituality and bringing in an expanded sense of self and a sense of connection to others. The mushrooms are part of that experience and it's a felt experience. And people can't argue with felt experiences. It's just, they have what they have. It's not something I'm telling you or an idea. And so really we're, all the different ways, the ancillary ways that we give people tools to support. I mean, you see it, you do see it happening with like, say the yoga movement or even the organic movement or the wellness business. It's billions of dollars going around. It's the hunger that people have for that connection to themselves and others. However misguided it might be, it's a symptom of the times. Mm -hmm. And mushrooms are definitely part of that as are other psychedelic uh, substances. And they have been. You know, it's just coming back in full force because as you said, there's some powerful shit going on. <laughs> and, yeah. And so it's you know, the, I mean, the other thing, the other thing I kind of want to, you know, I don't want to gloss over is that the few uh, people who have real knowledge and awareness around the mushroom medicine, who also are African-American, or of Caribbean descent, you know, indigenous Caribbean descent, um, a lot of them have felt that they can't do the work safely in America and they've gone mm -hmm. elsewhere, mm -hmm. whether it's to Jamaica or Mexico or, you know, there's a, there's a way in which it's so dangerous for certain people in America and it's so impossible to thrive that the mushrooms are even like helping get them to a safe sanctuary where they can keep doing their work. And I'm seeing this happen. Like, you know, people are being like called to keep working with mushrooms just, you know, in other countries. And yeah, that's information. Like if that's actually happening, we need to take into consideration what that means for uh, how easy it might be for a white person to open a clinic and partner with maps to sell MDMA. Like it's all related. And I, that's the kind of perspective that I want to also include that it, Yes, it's geographically bound by certain laws in a certain country, but also it's this global movement that people are realizing like, hey, 
I can keep giving mushrooms to my community, but the violence is so inescapable that they, it may not be enough. And so instead I need to go somewhere else where I can do the work and actually heal people in a way that I'm being called to heal them. And so what does that mean for the community they've left behind? Like, how can we help continue their work that they can't do safely? Um, What does it mean for someone, you know, who's white and privileged to start a business in Jamaica where mushrooms happen to be legal versus take the risk of staying in the States and like helping people underground? Like what's the calling there ethically? So it's like, it's, it's a personal question, but it's also this sociopolitical question. And this is why I think it has way more to do with the public than it has to do with these like medical approaches. So are you, Um, and I've just learned so much from humbling myself and asking and learning from people who like people, like I've just mentioned, and they kind of, they throw it in my face. They're like, Hey, like, look at this privilege that you have to even speak openly about your drug use. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is, I am I, sort of hearing you say like just a decriminalization model would be your favorite approach just because it would sort of open the doors to do whatever you want. I think so. I mean, you know, I'm still learning about drug policy. There have been people thinking about this for a long time in communities where, I mean, psychedelics aren't even remotely the biggest issue. And I think that decriminalization, as far as I've learned, is the most egalitarian and the kind of the least violent of the ways that we can start shifting and changing. And anything that holds up prohibition, which includes the compass and maps medical model of psilocybin, it actually depends on prohibition. Like they can't sell psilocybin and MDMA in clinics the way they want to if it's also not prohibited in all these other spaces. And right, so, that's what I was alluding to. Yeah, that's right. So that's the radical piece. Is like right now. Let me give like a different metaphor. So imagine if no one practiced meditation except for people from Asia, and before it got to America, doctors started studying the health benefits of mindfulness, and they said, "Hey, it seems like this amazing medicine." Uh, it's kind of hard, you know. The experience is kind of hard. It's challenging, but with the right space. You know, you can really benefit. It helps your heart. It helps your psychology. It's like has all these benefits. Um, but some people kind of go off the rails, even just from 10 minutes a day. So you're only going to be allowed to meditate if you come into my office and pay $1,000 a session for 10 minutes. And I know it sounds crazy, but like we just, we're really going to keep, we're going to make sure you stay safe. We're going to monitor your heart rate. We're going to monitor all your like blood levels of this and that. And like, you're actually going to feel better in eight weeks. And I know it's really expensive, but sorry, that's just how it is. Insurance will cover it maybe, but don't meditate at home. And certainly don't teach your friends how to meditate and don't teach your communities how to meditate because we just don't know what's going to happen. And it's ludicrous if someone told me I couldn't meditate in my own home with my altar and teach my daughter to meditate at the age of three just because the medical establishment also thinks it has health benefits. Well, or right think now about- you can't do anything. It's sort of like, right. that's what, and so it's sort of the other argument would be that at least there's a crack in the armor of the system saying you can't even do it at all. I know. To explore or, consciousness. Or think about something, you know, meditation is also eccentric. Think about like riding a bike or running. What if like there used to be a time where everyone biked 
but people are getting hit by cars. It's super dangerous for kids. Like people get drunk and get on bikes. And so we're going to ban bicycles. And a hundred years goes by and very few people bike because you can, you know, you can see that people are biking, they get in trouble, they get thrown in jail. But some people have like bikes in their basement, you know, like rotting away. And then some scientist like picks this up and says, hey, let's study this thing, but we'll, we'll make them all stationary bikes in a tiny room with like nice music, you know? And we're like pedaling along. And they're like, wow, it's so good for you. It makes me feel great. Like our patients are reporting these like mystical experiences from cycling and like music helps. And like, and then someone's like, can we bike outside again? And everyone's like, no, definitely not. Too dangerous. They're like, but people used to bike outside and it was really fun. It's like beautiful. And you're connecting with nature. And they're like, no, it's just too scary. So we're going to keep you on the stationary bike in our clinic. And oh, by the way, charge you for it. It's also ludicrous. If you take this psychedelic thing into any other metaphor, it's just outrageous. And so I really think these are the kind of, uh, like, this is why decriminalization is so obvious to me. And just because it's a chemical and a drug doesn't mean it's different than biking or running or meditation. And that's the the thing. It's like the churchgoers don't want to be told that they have to pay money to experience God through prayer in the doctor's office. They want to go to church. And so any type of, whether it's a lifestyle or hobby or sports or spiritual practice or church, everyone gets that they want freedom to choose for themselves and their families. Same with drugs. Amen. (laughs) Sorry, I just like, that was like really intense for me. I just like, this is what I do. I sit on my farm with my kids and think about this stuff. And it's like, it becomes more and more clear the more I feel it. And I meet people who need the, they need it now, you know, they need the understanding and the freedom and the education and the access now, not when Michael Pollan and his buddies and the researchers decide it's okay. Well, you know, sometimes there are folks out there sort of being disruptive inside the system and disruptive outside the system. And um, we all just need to bring a little more love into it and, and compassion and trust. And, you know, maybe just to sort of wrap up our conversation, you could <laughs> let me know. Well, I'm curious what your hope, where you're hopeful, like what areas you see either personally that you're feeling hopeful in this transition and this movement or what you're kind of hoping for. I'm really hopeful that the more people learn about psychedelics, the the safer and the more, uh, I think, beneficial it will be for everyone. Like, I, I'm very hopeful about this idea of education and learning. I think it's one of the things that humans are the best at, teaching, mm-hmm. learning, educating themselves. Even the most conservative people, the most fearful people are open to learning. And so learning and becoming new in that way is exciting to me. I'm going through this major shift where I've been painting for the first time as an adult and I love it. And like, I have no like sense of like objectively the art that I'm producing, but I just love the process. It is part of something I'm trying to create that kind of came to me in a vision four years ago. And I'm like super excited that it's finally coming into the world. And I'm also developing these like personal religious rituals to help support what the mushrooms have taught me. 
as because what I said is like the mushrooms made it very clear, like you're not really supposed to be ingesting us right now and maybe any more for a while. And so it forced me out of this very narrow view and be like, all right, what is my religion? Like, how big is it? What are the rituals? Like, what's, you don't just take communion, you know? It's like, there are all these prayers and understandings and beliefs and practices that go along with taking the sacrament. And so I'm now working with some really cool new rituals and it's really enlivening for me and like super creative. And so, uh, thank God, you know, I'm no longer working for the kind of clinical corporate structure. It's still like, you know, enrages me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can feel the fire and feel that response and it's understandable. And I also am really happy to hear about sort of your reconnection to a personal creative process. Cause that's something I talk about a lot. Yeah. And like, I just, no, it's like so fun. And like, you know, for people who are musicians and artists, when I say this, they're like, yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, well, sorry. Like what hasn't been my world? Like now I'm finally starting to understand the world of like artists and musicians, even the littlest bit. It's like super fun. So yeah, it's what makes us unique. It's one of the things is our ability to create and be creative. And yeah. it's it's also, I think, another doorway into into personal self-worth and happiness. Just, I mean, you can do it in so many different ways. It doesn't have to be like traditional things like painting or music, which maybe seem hard to people, but we're creative in how we cook and even in some conversations and how we give to people. But it really seems to bring us to life. And it's sad that we push that aside as adults. And there, there's been, you know, there's some psychedelic things out there with breath work and stuff that integrate in artwork at the end. And I, I think that's just a really interesting way of tapping into uh, other parts of our psyche beyond just the, our intellect. Yeah. And letting something be expressed through that and exercised through that, that there's, there's, there's something there. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just glad like we're even having all these conversations and that there are summits and that like they sell out and books are people are just like want information and they want, you know, there's definitely something happening. There's a, there's definitely a wave of energy. And I, I think it's important to all these different ideas and the questions that you're positing. And so I just want to thank you for, for having that fire and for having, having your opinions and sharing them because I think that's what's needed. Well, thank you. And I'm always grateful to speak with, uh, with someone who understands the really grand, whatever this is that's happening, like not knows it, but like understands the mechanism, understands all of these relationships. And it feels like, to have folks like you entering the larger awareness of what is being transmitted. Like so many people will get excited because there's an album, you know, or like a playlist that weren't excited before. It's like, Oh, music for mushrooms. Like awesome. (laughs) And it's just like, this is what we need. We need like all of the creative solutions possible. And it's just like super exciting. So thank you for devoting so much of your time and energy to creating that medicine for people. I can't like, it makes me so excited that I have more to share. Yeah. Well, I'd be happy to have another conversation sometimes. I mean, I tend to keep these around an hour because 
I usually blather as an intro and then I play music <laughs> as an outro and the next thing you know, it's a two hour podcast, but yeah. um, it's a, it's a continued conversation. So if you ever want to dive into more and, and um, I'd be, be happy to do that sometime. Awesome. Cool. Well, how do folks find you and dive into some more of uh, offerings? Uh, you know, I got kind of overwhelmed by personal requests. I mean, kind of thanks to the popularity of Pollen's book. I mean, people read my name and then think that I'm going to hook them up with mushrooms. Or like there's some kind of like secret <laughs> yeah, I wisdom that I can, you know, impart in an hour. And it became so stressful for me physically and mentally that I've realized that I'm going to redirect my energy to more like online educational content for a time. And so that's kind of an exciting new avenue that I'm exploring. And so if people sign up, I have a newsletter. It kind of comes out a little bit randomly, but it's called Mystical Monday. And if you go to my website, katherinemclean.org, I'm always adding resources there for people. And if I happen to have an in-person talk or workshop, it goes up on the splash page. And if there becomes something that's more of an online offering, it's definitely going to come through that website and the newsletter. And I don't know, I find like the newsletter isn't, you know, every few months, it's not that annoying. And so some people unsubscribe, but it, um, it's not like going to bombard you every week with my opinions. Um, so it's kind of a cool way to stay connected with my particular corner of the world. And yeah, I always, you know, people email me and sometimes there's like that mystical spark and it creates something really amazing. So you may not hear back if you email me, which is why I took my email down from my website. But if you happen to want to connect with me, reach out and like, who knows, you know, I think if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So that's my somewhat vague answer of how to get in awesome. touch with me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for chatting. I'll put that link in the show notes and maybe again. But for now, folks, please do not email us and ask us for mushrooms. We don't have them. We will not give them to you. <laughs> and <laughs> signing off for now. <laughs> thank you so much, Catherine, for giving us your time. I love being able to get into conversation with people and to just just dive in and see other viewpoints and other points of uh, just other other ways of being and living and everyone's experience it just makes mine so much richer. Thank you, Catherine. This music you are hearing in the background is an uh, an edited version of the song "Always" from Music to Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner. There will be probably in early 2020 a uh, edited version of that album that will come out on vinyl called Spores, tentatively. But that's what you're hearing in the background, so it's a little bit of a, a sneak peek at that. And thank you for reviewing the podcast. It's easy to do. Just give it five stars. Go down, hit the writer review if that option is available. If you're on Apple and podcasts, you just got to find either it's from the available episode screen or you just keep kind of trying to scroll down it's down there just hit it write a few words say something say what you like let me know communicate it's all part of being active in this conversation to help propel new ideas openness and a new conversation amongst all of us i hope to see you on the road and uh and if i'm not on the road um 
well, we'll see each other in, in the astral plane. This is Mr. East Forest signing off. You keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But when you do, do it with grace, folks. Peace. Thank you.